Well, good morning, First Baptist. Okie dokie. It is a good morning to be in God's house. It is, uh, you saw the announcements we've got going on. Today's a big day. We have our community Thanksgiving service this evening. I want to invite all of you to make sure you go to that. We will have buses leaving here at 5 o'clock for anybody that wants to go. It is a sad day for our church family. Uh, if you look up in the choir loft, you'll see that the seat to the far right on the very back uh, has a drape and flowers. Uh, our friend Frankie Land passed away this week unexpectedly, and uh, we don't have any details on the funeral yet, but we'll be letting you know as soon as we know. So you will be want to remember Sissy and her family as they uh, grieve the passing of Frankie and a whole bunch of folks that, uh, that Frankie has touched over the years. Uh, let's go to God in prayer, and then Danny DuBose is going to come and talk to us a little bit about Thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that the heaviness of grief won't overshadow us this morning to the point that we can't hear and hear from you and speak to you. Lift our hearts this morning, Lord, as we remember that you're with us all the, all the time, that as Kathy and I were talking about earlier, as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're with us. We are never, ever, ever alone. And your word goes to extreme lengths to, to hammer into our minds that nothing can separate us from you. Nothing. Our feelings may say that we're not apart. Our feelings may say that our prayers aren't rising to the ceiling. Our feelings can say that we are in utter aloneness. But the truth of your word says that we are never alone. That you hold us and you love us so much that you even gave your son to die for us. So that we would never be alone. Help us to worship you in this hour. Help us to praise you for that promise in this hour. Help us to see you and to hear your voice. And that this Thanksgiving we would lift up praises, not simply because you've given us a lot of good things, but because you are with us. And that's enough. We love you, Lord. And we thank you for what you're doing here at First Baptist. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Kathy. One of the signs of a successful church is that the community is happy that the church is there. We have a chance this afternoon, I'm going to plug it one more time, have a chance this afternoon to impact our community by attending the community Thanksgiving service. Last year this room was packed from churches from all over Jones County. This afternoon we're going to... Uh, New Damascus Baptist Church, you go up 11 until you get to Hungerford Road and you drive until you find a church. It's about five miles out in the woods. You're going through the middle of nowhere and all of a sudden there's this big church building sitting there. It will be an energetic service. So if you go and you are not into energetic, you might not want to go. But if you can do energetic and you can enjoy being with people of different faiths that everybody believes in Jesus, this is a good place. 
because yesterday we had our rehearsal yesterday morning, uh, one of uh, our second choir rehearsal yesterday morning, and we just became a family. And we had a worship service yesterday morning at 11 a.m., and it was pretty cool. So, invite you to come. You'll have to go out of your way a little bit, 6 o'clock today. If, you've, uh, if you don't drive after dark, be here at 5 o'clock, and the bus will take you up there, and then I don't know how you get home. But that's just the way this thing will work. So, y'all come. Y'all come. And having said y'all come, my opening line of the message is y'all got to go. I don't know, uh, this, this, this works specifically with parents, but uh, I think it probably will work with everybody if you sort of let your mind wander on the, on the situation. Y'all got to go. Y'all got to go. That's a phrase that I would use with my children when they're arguing and they're whining and they're complaining and they're begging and they're whatever they were doing, finally got on my last nerve. I would look at them and I would say, y'all got to go. Now, what that phrase says is this. Number one, you have no idea what you're talking about. You have no idea what you're asking. You have no idea. And the fact that I realize from the way you're asking this thing, I can't change your mind. We're not going to make any headway. Get out. Go on. Y'all got to go. Now, what they understood that to mean was this. We need to leave the room and become invisible. Because if there's any visibility whatsoever, daddy's not going to, it will be ugly. It will be ugly. So they would just poof, they're gone. And it's like I didn't have children. And that was a good thing. Y'all got to go. Y'all got to go. At the end of chapter 5 of John, the people have decided that Jesus would make a, a great king. And that's totally contrary to what Jesus was here to do. He had no desire to be the king because he was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And maybe the text doesn't say this, but maybe, you know, we, we think about the disciples and Jesus were over here and the crowds were over there, but it didn't work that way. They had just fed 5,000 people. The disciples had wandered among all of these people hearing what they said, and the people are saying things along the lines of he ought to be the king, and you know, if he can do this kind of stuff, imagine what he could do for Israel. And the disciples are hearing that, and they think the same thing themselves. And so they come up to Jesus and they probably are saying to him, you know, you really could do this king thing, Jesus. You really could do this. And Jesus looks at all of them and he says, you got to go. You got to go. We're finished. It's time to move on. The story of Jesus walking on the water is in John chapter 11. Uh, John chapter 11. Where am I at? John chapter 6 and, and uh, it's also told in the book of Matthew, and we're going to study it out of Matthew this morning. Matthew chapter 14. John chapter 6, he makes one point and one point only. He is saying this is the fifth sign that you need to have to understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The man walks on water. The man feeds 5,000 people. He commands nature. You need to understand this is who he is, and that's John's point. But Matthew includes some other details. You know, two people, we've always said that, two people see the same car wreck. One person can tell you one set of details, and other people tell you another set of details. Well, John told us what his story, the point he wanted to make, but Matthew's got some other points he wants to make. Same story, just a different viewpoint. So we're going to take it apart verse by verse, a couple of verses at a time, and see what this story holds for us. 
Matthew 14, 22 through 23 is where we start, and it goes 22 through 33. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Well into the night, he was there alone. Now, you have to think about it, listen to it a little bit, but I can hear Jesus in here saying to himself, y'all got to go. Y'all got to go. We, we, we're here. We, we've done all we can here. It's time to move on. I can hear Jesus saying to the disciples, okay, guys, here's the deal. These people aren't going to leave until we leave. So get in the boat and go to Capernaum. And like children, the disciples probably would have said something along the lines of, Jesus, you know it's getting late. And Jesus would say, yeah, and you've been fishing at night before. This is not going to be hard for you. Get in your boat and go to Capernaum. Well, where are you going to go? Well, I'm going to go up once all of y'all are gone. There's a nice little place up this hill to pray. And I'm going up here so I can be alone and I can pray. Jesus, we'd like to go with you. Get in the boat and go. Isn't that the way we sort of kind of do it with our children? Eh, It's time to go. Get in the boat and go. And as the disciples got in the boat, Jesus would announce to everybody else, okay, guys, we're going to Capernaum. So you need to leave. Head on home. Passover soon. A lot of work to be done. Thank you for coming, but you you need to move on. And they would say, we want to stay with you, Jesus. And he'd say, I'd love for you too, but there's much to be do. You need to be on your way. And as they walked away, he went to a private place to pray. He went to a special place. He went to a different place, a place out of the ordinary. Now, Jesus could have prayed anywhere, couldn't he? He could have prayed on that boat with his disciples. Think about it. He would have been, it's, it's coming up on evening. The sun is coming over the mountains. It's getting low in the sky. The sun's coming over the mountains. They're going to be paddling out into the middle of of the Sea of Galilee. They would look all around themselves and they would see the mountains and they'd see the dark starting to fall on this side and the sun coming across. And it would have been very beautiful. And Romans 1 tells us that we we can see the power of God in creation. And Jesus could have seen all of that. And he could have been on that boat and he could have given thanks and prayed right there. But he chose not to do that. He chose a special time and a special place to go pray. And when you read the scriptures, you'll find he didn't do this every time, but he did do it on a regular basis that he picked a different place to go and be by himself to pray. If Jesus did that, don't you think that would be a good idea for us too? I mean, he knew what he was doing. I tell you, at least for me and a few other people that have confided in me, when we have our prayer vigil and you come into this room by yourself with nothing but your Bible, and you spend 30 minutes alone in this room, it is a different experience from any prayer you're going to pray anywhere else. This room, think about it, this room was built and dedicated to God. And the, the, the what we expect to happen is when we walk through these doors, we know God doesn't inhabit a building, that God inhabits the universe. We know that. But this room was dedicated to God, and when we walk through these doors, we think of God. This is his house set apart, built and set apart for him. 
So when we come into this room, our minds are already wrapped up with the fact that we're going to meet God in this place. So coming here alone in this room that we've set aside for worship is different. It's special. And it's not just for the fanatics among us. Jesus got alone and prayed. You guys ought to try it. One time, try it. 30 minutes promise you can do it and I promise when you walk away it'll be a different you'll be a different person because of what you've done so in this scripture Jesus says everybody you got to go and they go and he goes up on the mountain to pray meanwhile the boat was already some distance from land battered by the waves because the wind was against them Jesus knew that was going to happen Jesus knew when he sent them out he knew exactly what he was sending them into didn't he he knew that a storm was about to blow up he knew that the wind was going to be blowing from the wrong direction and it was going to be very very difficult for them to paddle that boat to where they were supposed to go he knew that he told them to go to Capernaum and that they would make up their minds to go to Capernaum so they could meet him there they he knew all along that he was sending them into the middle of a storm on a lake and they would be terrified he knew it when he did it you understand don't you you see if we believe that God is sovereign over all things that he is uniquely and completely in charge of the universe if we believe what Hebrews says that he is the son is the radiance of God's glory the exact representation of his nature sustaining all things by his powerful word Romans 8 29 that I repeat all the time for those who he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son Jesus that we have to believe that even the calamity that comes into our lives even if that calamity is caused by our own selfishness our own bad decisions, our own poor choices, our, poor, our, our own ignorance, every calamity that happens in our life, God uses to serve a purpose, and it's meant for our continued growth to be like Jesus. He uses it all. Nothing goes wasted. He knows what's going to happen. When I look at my past, I can choose to look at my past and see a past littered with bad decisions and foolish mistakes and heartaches and embarrassments and failures that I brought on myself, I can look at my life and I can see things that happened to me that were just life. They just occurred. And they came as no surprise to God at all. He knew that it was going to happen. And it gives me some amount of assurance knowing that it's not random nonsense, that it's not worthless suffering and pain, that even in the worst that happens to us, that, that he is there and he is going to use it for his purpose and he will get glory out of it. And when he gets glory out of it, we get the overflow of that. We have to understand that. Jesus sent those disciples into that boat to row to Capernaum knowing full well he was sending them into the teeth of a storm and he did it on purpose. 
Matthew 14, 25 and 26. Jesus came toward them walking on the sea very early in the morning. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Now, this is neat because this is us. And this is us, and y'all know if you listen to it and, and understand what I'm saying, you'll see us all wrapped around in this thing. Years ago, years ago, I went to a really scary movie. Now, I didn't do scary. I was the one kid in the neighborhood that never saw Godzilla versus anybody. Because, see, I knew that if I watched anything that was remotely scary, even the beginning of scary, that those things would inhabit my dreams and I would wake up with nightmares. I didn't care what it was. Anything. I had this very sensitive subconscious that would suck it in there. And when I went to bed, whatever I had watched on television would come at me and was going to eat me or destroy me or some. No, I didn't go. But back in this particular time in history, there was this one movie that came out in the supernatural genre and it involves satanic evil, and I was struggling with my call to be a pastor, and it was involved a priest, and so I thought I would go see this movie, and I did, and it scared, I, I don't have words. I do not have words. It scared me to death. So I came home that night. Now, this was back in the day, and some of y'all aren't going to believe this. You're just not going to believe this because you can't believe that there was ever a day existed that every building wasn't air-conditioned. When I was young, some of you folks with gray hair remember these days, you would go downtown and on the buildings that have a sign, air-conditioned inside, and you would go into that because that was special. Nobody else had air conditioning. Automobiles didn't have, we had 460 air conditioning. You roll all four windows down, you go 60 miles an hour, and that's how you stayed cool. That's the way this thing operated, and this was back in those days. We did not have air conditioning in my house. We did not have air conditioning. So that means that you sleep at night with the windows up. So I come in late. Of course, we go to the late movie because I'm, you know, late teenager, early 20s when this happened. So you always go to the late movie, and I'm sneaking in the house real quiet. Don't want to wake anybody up. Everybody in the house is asleep. I come in the kitchen door, I have to go all the way through the house to get to my bedroom. Right as I get to my bedroom door, outside my window, something made the most blood-curdling scream I have ever heard in my life. I knew it was the devil. I turned, I ran through that house like I was running for a touchdown. Now, I have always been built about like I'm built now. So when I go running through the house, it's not a little tiptoe through the tulips. There's booming and banging and going, and I don't care what I run into. And mom comes running out of her room, and she says, what's the matter? And I'm standing by the kitchen door trying to get my breath. When I realized that was not the devil that was outside my window, it was a cat. Somebody's cat that deserved to die. And that cat had screamed outside my window. But my brain took what it heard and did not understand and it turned it into something. That's exactly what happened to the disciples on that boat see the word terrified here doesn't doesn't translate well for us they were terrified but what that word means is it means 
It means that when they looked at this event, they saw something coming that looked like a man walking on the water. But it was in the distance. But it looked like a man walking on the water. Now, what your brain does, my brain does, is when we see something that doesn't make sense, it has to try to make sense out of it. I was going home from here one day. I may have told you all about this. I was going home from here one night, going up 129. I'm going across the straightaway right before it goes into a turn. And coming out of that turn, as I'm headed toward it, four headlights are coming towards me. Four. On a two-lane road. It's four headlights. And it took me several seconds, I mean like five, six, seven seconds, because I'm saying, oh, I must be coming up on a curve, and this must be the angle, and this must be, and it took me a little while to realize that the reason I'm seeing four headlights is two of them are in my lane. But see, my brain was saying, this isn't the way this is supposed to operate. So there's got to be a rational reason for this to occur. So these guys are on the water. They're already terrified. <clears throat> they're already afraid because of the wind and the rain, and they're having to work so hard and they're struggling, and all the stuff that's going on. And they see something in the distance, looks like somebody walking on the water. They know it can't happen. They're not sure what it is, but their brain's telling them that they've got to figure out something. And so they look at it, and, and the more they think, the more they go, you know what? That's got to be a ghost. That's got to be a malevolent spirit. He's going to come out here. He's going to come out to this boat. He's going to drown all of us out here in the middle of the sea. Nobody will ever see us again. The world's going to come to an end. Oh, my goodness. The word there, phobos, means fear. All right, the terrified part means that they were working themselves into it, but then they finally worked themselves into a point where they were truly, truly, absolutely, totally terrified in the word that we would use terrified. Been there, done that, haven't we? Haven't every one of us been there and done that? Your child has a 104 degree temperature. What's your first thought? You go to the doctor and the doctor says the word cancer. And what's your first thought? Your child is driving back to school. Your college student's driving back to school. It's an hour past the time that they were supposed to call you and tell you that they're home. What's the first thought that you have? We immediately try to fill in all the blanks and jump to the worst possible possible conclusion and we react accordingly we forget that God's in control we forget that the Lord is working to make us more holy and more righteous all the time we forget all of the things that the Lord's done for us in the past we can look back on our lives and the older you get the more you can do this look back and see how God's worked things in your life to get you to where you are and we forget every bit of that all we see is that the world's coming to an end and we're terrified, and that's what these guys did. But then Jesus did, verse 27, said, Immediately Jesus spoke to them, Have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Jesus always is faithful to remind us that he's in control. Be strong and courageous, don't, don't be afraid. And now we get to the part where we always give Peter trouble. Poor slacker Peter. He walks on the water, can't have enough faith, and he sinks. Lord, if it's you, Peter answered, command me to come to you on the water, he said. And he said, Jesus, come. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. 
And immediately Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him, and said to him, you, are of, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. I don't believe for one skinny minute that Peter did not know who that was walking on the water once Jesus spoke. Jesus says himself, my sheep, my sheep hear my voice once they've heard his voice. Peter knew exactly who it was. He knew it was Jesus. He wasn't wanting Jesus to designate that, yes, it's me. Peter was looking for permission. He saw Jesus doing something pretty cool, and he wanted to do it too. And I want you to notice here in all of this, I think there's some messages hidden, and, and, and I'm going to let you work it out for yourself. I've been working them out for myself thinking about this. Nobody else on the boat asked for permission. Nobody else asked a thing. Nobody else shouted to Peter, man, you've got to be crazy. Peter, you're the man. Peter, you've... Nobody did anything. Peter had the courage to step out by himself, just him and Jesus, because he wanted to do what Jesus did. I want to do this. And Peter walked on the water. Peter walked on the water. Do you understand? Do you understand that Peter got out of that boat and he walked on water? But here's the deal. Never in the history of humanity from this moment we live in right this minute all the way back to the beginning of time, only two people have ever walked on the water. One of them was Jesus and one of them was Peter. None of us will ever do that. And this was a brand spanking new experience. No rules, nothing to go by, no idea of what to expect. As Peter walks on the water toward Jesus, the unreality of what he's doing. I mean, think about this now. I'll let this little thought play out. It says the winds and the waves and all this kind of stuff. And Peter walks out. What do you do? How do you walk on the water? Big waves coming up. Do you step up? Waves pass. Do you step down? How do you do this? And he's walking on here, and he's walking toward Jesus, and he feels the solid under his feet, but he starts thinking to himself, how do I do this? How does this work? Look at the wind. Look at the waves. What, am I, what have I got myself into? And the Scripture says that he began to sink. Now, the word translated beginning, I thought, well, maybe... Maybe it's nuanced, you know. Maybe it's like, have you ever skied behind an underpowered boat? I had somebody one time convince me to ski behind a 60-horsepower boat. Now, it took forever to get me up. But once I got up, it was cool as long as I stayed right behind the boat. But see, you can't do that because you got a showboat. And so I do my little thing, and I ski out to the side of the boat. And when I get over here, the boat's still back here. And so I just start until the boat snaps the rope, and off you go again. So I thought to myself, well, maybe that's what happened here. Maybe what happened here is Peter was beginning to sink, that he just started to ease on down in the water. But then I looked this word up, and this word has two meanings. Of course, one of them is it could mean that you're just beginning to sink. And the other one means that you are beginning to sink to the bottom of a lake, which means he dropped like a rock. So I don't know which one it was. Have no clue. All I know is that when Peter started to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus took him by the hand and they walked on the water again. 
to get back into the boat. You got to see us in Peter. You got to see us in Peter. A lot of times we get gung-ho to do something and it's a big something and we get involved and we're ready to go, but maybe opposition comes or it's harder than we think or maybe it costs more than we thought or maybe everybody that was going to help us all of a sudden got tickets to a ball game and they're all gone and, and Lord, I don't know what I was thinking. I can't do this. Lord, save me. I don't remember where I read it. But someone said the prayer that God is waiting to hear from every one of us is a three-word prayer. Lord, save me. That simple prayer unleashes our possibility of doing impossible things because it's not us doing them anymore. It's Jesus. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshipped him and said, truly you are the son of God. Now think about this, and maybe I'm thinking about this wrong, but I really don't think that I am. I wonder if Peter had not sunk into the water, if he had not sunk, if he had walked out to Jesus and they had walked and talked around a little bit and then they had walked and got back in the boat, everybody's response probably, I would think, everybody's response would be, Peter, you're the man. I'm telling you what, Peter, you showed us, didn't you? You got out of the boat, you walked out to Jesus, you walked all around, you came back, you are the man. I'm telling you, Peter, you're something else. We, I mean, I will follow you, Peter, you're cool. But because Peter sunk and Jesus saved him, their response was, truly, you are the Son of God. You see, we... We should never be ashamed of our weakness. We should never be ashamed when we falter. We should never be ashamed in that moment where we go, I can't do this anymore. Because when we turn and say, Jesus, save me, that's when we see the glory of God. That's when we see these things change. That's when we see Jesus do what he wanted to do in the first place. Jesus, save me. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. The story of Peter walking on the water with Jesus brings us one step closer to understand how to give thanks in everything. You know, our entire concept of thanksgiving is wrapped around the idea that God's given us many blessings. And that we should, and we should, thank him for those blessings. But we think they're blessings only when they're good. Only when they make us happier, only when they increase our bank account, only when they add to our holdings, only when our children are doing something spectacular, only when something good happens at the church that we decide is a good thing that happens in church. But you know what? Every moment of every day is a blessing. Because every moment of every day is a moment that Jesus is working in my life and in your life to make us like him. Every moment of every day. Every day he's trying to make you more full of peace and patience and goodness and kindness. Couldn't some of you use a good dose of patience? I don't know. You know I'm the most patient human being on the face of the planet. 
I don't know that I need that. But I know some of you do. And there's sometimes we need a little more kindness and a little more goodness. And he's working in us all the time. Every day he's working to teach us discernment so we can know truth from falsehood. And folks, that big box in your television that spouts off, uh, in your living room that spouts off stuff all the time, you need to be able to, to discern truth from error. And when somebody stands in front of you and preaches, you need to discern truth from error. And when you pick up the latest book from the bookstore, you need to discern truth from error. Every day he's teaching me what is truly important, what I really need to love. I really do love, need to love the people in my life. I, I tread here very gently, but I want to make this point. We have had three people pass away in three weeks, and two of those people weren't supposed to die. Ms. Barbara Pruitt had been sick for a long, long time. She went home to be with Jesus. That's sort of how the thing's supposed to work, you know. But the other two weren't. And you know what that teaches us? That every moment's precious. And, and Brother Frank Duke was talking to me this morning. And he said, you know, we need to remember when we're, when we're treating people that this might be the last time we speak or see or do. And we need to live like this is the last minute. That's one lesson we can learn from all of this. Maybe sometimes if we remembered, he would help us curb our tongue, calm our temper, not see things that aren't there, but to see the truth. I know this is difficult, but it's true. Everything that comes into my life, everything is, is something to be grateful for when I recognize that even in the worst of it, and some of you are living in the worst of it, some of you have lived through the worst of it, there's still the realization that the almighty maker of the universe is walking with us. He weeps with us. He holds us up. He gives us strength and endurance. He drives us to overcome. He saves us over and over and over again. So maybe our Thanksgiving prayer should include this line. Thank you, Jesus, that in all things, whether to me they are good, bad, or indifferent in all things, you were there with me, and I know that no matter what, you'll never let me go, ever. Let's pray. Make joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. 
be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. Sweet Jesus, teach us to be your sheep. To not fret over every fear we think we see. Help us to trust that not all the things that happen to us are evil, but that all things, all things are smoothing tools in your hands to make us more like you every day. Lord, we pray especially for those whose loss and suffering is so deep, so powerful, so tender, and questions play in their minds until they are tormented. Father, please, in your enduring mercy, show them your hand even in the midst of their tragedy. Jesus, thank you for the indescribable gifts you've lavished upon us. Thank you, Jesus, that in all things, whether to us they seem good, bad, or indifferent, in all things you are there with us. And we know that no matter what, you'll never let us go. Thank you for Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Your invitation this morning is to pray a single prayer, a three-word prayer. Jesus, save me. Jesus, save me. Maybe you've never trusted him as your Savior. That's the prayer. You don't have to know anything more than that. Maybe you are in the middle of something that's horrible. That's a good prayer, too. Maybe you're wherever. That's a good prayer. Stand with me as we sing.